If you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 29 to 34 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 961. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. And we're in this second section in chapter 15 where Paul proves the, the utter absurdity of the idea held by some of them in the, in the Corinthian church that the dead are not raised. And if you remember in verses 1 through 19 of this chapter, Paul gives his first argument of the absurdity that the dead are not raised. And his argument is simple. If the dead are not raised, then Christ himself was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then the gospel is useless. And those who have died in Christ are lost, and we have no hope. In verses 29 to 34, Paul gives further argument against this faulty idea held by many in Corinth. And two weeks ago, we looked at verse 29, the beginning of this verse in this section, which is a perplexing verse about the baptism on behalf of the dead. And as I mentioned two weeks ago when I preached on it, there's really no consensus among the scholars about the specific practice that Paul is referring to in this verse. And we looked at different options. But the reality is that the Holy Spirit has not revealed enough information for us to know for sure what this specific reference that Paul was referring to. But it ultimately doesn't matter. See, the Holy Spirit gives us what we need. And if he didn't give this information, then we don't need to know it. But the main point that Paul is making by this verse is that some group of people, and they may have been Christian, they may not have been, were performing some kind of baptism, and it may have been Christian baptism or maybe something else. And they were doing this on behalf of the dead. And it may have been other people who were dead, or they may be referring to them themselves who are spiritually dead. They're dying bodies of the people who are being baptized. Again, we don't know. We can only speculate on, on the details. But the main point uh, is that these people were, were doing this practice for one reason. And that reason is they truly believed that the dead were being raised. Well, today we're going to look at this entire section of this chapter, posing some, some practical questions about how we should live in light of this reality, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 15, 29-34. You're now the word of the Lord. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Lord, we do need your spirit. I pray for your spirit to be with me. I pray for your spirit to be with each one of us, that as we look at this passage, as I preach through this passage, Lord, we will understand you better. We will understand your word better. Father, we will have an encounter with you. And I pray, Father, that we will be changed. Father, I pray that you give me your power of the Holy Spirit as I proclaim these words. And above all, Father, I pray that you are glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are things that are tragic, and there are things that are very tragic. And I'm not talking about the tragedies due to, due to living in this fallen world, such as accidents or illnesses or violence. I'm talking about self-inflicted tragedies. Tragedies that are due to our own sin, really due to our own stupidity. And one tragedy is when we see people who reject God. 
when we see an unbeliever, a person who rejects the special revelation of Scripture and the general revelation of nature that testify to biblical morality, that writes it on the conscience of every person. It's tragic when we see these people live consistently with their anti-biblical worldview, such as being self-centered, living for this life only, looking out for number one, selling their souls to make a buck, lying, cheating. It's tragic when we see people who live this way knowing exactly where it will lead. It's like watching an accident in slow motion. You know exactly what's going to happen, but there's nothing we can do to stop it. And it's tragic to watch these people reap the the natural consequences of their faulty worldview, which often include broken relationships, unhappiness, physical illness, mental illness, incarceration, early death, and apart from the grace of God, eternal damnation. It's tragic, but it's not unexpected. It's predictable. The really tragic thing is what is unexpected. It's when we see the person who professes faith in Christ, who knows the truth, who proclaims the truth, who has good theology, but lives no differently than the unbeliever. Lives consistently, or I should say lives inconsistently, with his profession and his theology. And this person who claims to be a Christian, and this person may be regenerate, I don't know the the state of their souls, but they adopt the same worldview. They think the same way as the unbeliever. A person who, for all intents and purposes, thinks and acts as an unbeliever, despite being a Christian, despite his sound theology. And this is really tragic when we see someone who ought to know better, who has access to the truth, and we see them fall into the same tracks, traps, make the same mistakes, head down the same miserable and predictable path of unbelievers, reaping the same natural consequence as the unbeliever. And this is even more chilling. And this should get our attention. It should cause us to look in the mirror and ask, is this me? Can I be deceived? Could I be a hypocrite? Could I be living this duplicit life? And this passage we're looking at today, yes, it's a second proof of the reality of the resurrection of the the dead, but it could also be used as a test, a test of the reality of do we really believe what we claim? Do we really act consistently with the reality that the dead are raised, that the gospel is true? Or do we profess one thing and act in a way that reveals that we really don't believe what we claim? And we're going to look at this test in today's passage. So let's start off with this mysterious verse 29 we looked at two weeks ago. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And as we looked at this two weeks ago, I mentioned there's really no way to know the specific situation that Paul's addressing in this verse without speculation. And there was an, interpret, an interesting interpretation that, that Nathan shared during our theology class two weeks ago. And it's a little plug for our theology class. We don't just talk about the Westminster Confession. Sometimes we talk about the sermons. Sometimes we talk about other theological questions. So it's always interesting. So two weeks ago, we were talking about what it means to be baptized for the dead. And Nathan actually had a, a really good uh, interpretation that I hadn't really thought of beforehand. And so he doesn't think this verse is referring to Christians, but it's actually referring to unbelievers, uh, to pagans that the, uh, that the Corinthians may have known. And so they're, they're basically what, what this is talking about is baptism it was, was common among pagans. It was a cleansing ritual in, in other religions. And it was a superstitious practice. 
It was thought to gain some benefit uh, for the departed, kind of like the medieval church when they thought the, the practice of selling indulgences was a way to get a loved one out of purgatory. And if this is a, if this is a pagan ritual, then Paul's point here is that even pagans, even pagans that don't know God, intuitively know, through common grace, they intuitively know that there is a resurrection. So if God made this fact so clear that even the pagans know about it, then what excuse do Christians have? Christians not to believe this central doctrine that is not only revealed in general revelation, but is explicitly taught in scripture and explicitly taught by the apostolic witness. So the problem here is not that the doctrine of the resurrection, and really by extension, much Christian revelation, it's not that it's not known, but rather it's suppressed. It's known and suppressed. It's suppressed in unrighteousness. Romans 1, uh, verses 18 and 19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And sadly, this is not just true for the pagan, who has no exposure to God's word and God's people, but it's also true of the person who's in the church, a person who at least superficially professes correct biblical theology, but whose behavior and actions tell another story. It tells that they really don't believe what they profess. Their actions tell that they really don't believe what they profess. Now, some say, well, wait a minute. What do you mean they really don't believe? They may be inconsistent, but that doesn't mean that they don't believe what, they, what, what they're saying. right? We, we don't always act in accordance to what we believe. Does that mean we really don't believe it? And I say yes. I say that the truth is that we always act in accordance with what we believe. We don't often act consistently with what we say we believe, but we always act in accordance with what we really believe. See, our behavior and, and our actions, they're a barometer of our beliefs, our true beliefs, not the, not the beliefs that we proclaim outwardly or even what we may think we believe, but what we truly believe. And let me give you an example to, to, to illustrate this. When I was a senior in high school, I had to drive to Rutgers University to take my placement exams. And I was driving at that time, I had a 1966 Plymouth Valiant. And this car, Lynn, Lynn will know this car, this car needed a lot of TLC to stay running. It had like holes in the floor. You can watch the, the, the road go by on this car. And I'm driving this car and, and I'm, I'm coming up on a 90 degree turn. I'm driving maybe 50, 55 miles an hour. So I take my foot off the gas and I hit the brakes. And guess what? Brakes go all the way down to the floor. Car's still going 55 miles an hour. And this 90 degree turn is getting closer and closer. So in a panic, I am pumping the brakes as hard as I can. And eventually they catch a little bit that slows down and I kind of screech around that I don't crash the car. But my question to you, do you think I drove 55 miles an hour after that? No, I drove two miles an hour because I didn't trust my brakes. Before, I thought the brakes were going to work. That's what I believe, so I drive as fast as I want. But when I don't think the, the, the brakes work, I'm only driving two miles an hour. I had that little handbrake that I had to pull up. That was what I was using. See, I acted in accordance with what I truly believed. Here's, here's another one. We all know people who will tell you, you know, you have your truth, I have my truth. You know, what's true for you is not true for me. Or, or we create our own reality. My friends, no one really believes this. You can't live like this. Do you ignore stop signs? You say, well, they're, they're, that truck coming, that's your reality, not my reality. I'm just going to keep going. Do you ignore gravity? Do you step off a ladder and say, oh, I'm not going to fall because gravity is not part of my reality. 
Of course not. You don't ignore viruses because you don't agree with your reality. No, you can't live this way. So we, we always act in accordance with what we believe. But we also need to understand, this is key, that our beliefs, our beliefs, these beliefs that drive our actions, these are not solely based on logic and car, hard, cold hard facts or, or science like we, we like to tell ourselves. Our beliefs are primarily based on our desires, on our desires. See, we believe to be true what we want to be true. Again, in Romans 1, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, general revelation, so they are without excuse. And here's the part. So for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. See, they knew God. Even the pagans knew God. The thing is, they didn't like God. They didn't want to submit to God. So what they did is they created idols. Idols that they could control. And they claimed that these idols, these are our gods. See, really, it's things they can control. Really, they're worshiping themselves. My friends, we're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of this willful ignorance. One of the one of the kind of the saddest things I remember experienced when I was serving on a session of another church up in Blacksburg, Virginia, is this Virginia Tech student came to us and, and she she was a very nice student and and, and uh, I knew her personally. She she came up to the session and said, "I'm no longer a Christian. I no longer believe what the Bible teaches." And we said, "Why is this?" And she says, "Well, it's because of science." She was a science major, and she said that that science is is contradicting what the Bible teaches. So we had her, she was actually pre-vet, we had her talk with Lynn, and Lynn answered some of her questions. We had a world-renowned scientist uh, who was a, a faculty member of Virginia Tech, who was a member of our church. He even had her out to dinner and talk with her. And, and it would answer each one, each, each, ex, uh, each objection she came up was answered clearly and articulated. And it was like playing whack-a-mole. Every time you'd answer one, another one would pop up. And what we realized after much digging is it turns out that this young woman was living in a sexual relationship with a guy not married. And she knew. She knew she was raised in a Christian home. She knew that this is inconsistent with her Christian teaching. So what she did is she had a choice. Do I reject the lifestyle, what I'm doing, or do I reject biblical Christianity? And sadly, she rejected the Bible rather than her own sinful actions. She believed to be true what she wanted to be true. And this is what so many of us who claim to be Christians do. We believe the parts of the Bible we like, and we reject the parts that we don't like. Right? We want a God who's all-loving, but a God who's not holy. A God who will celebrate our sin, but never, never even hint that maybe we should change. And as a consequence, we believe that which God clearly reveals in creation, clearly reveals in his word, and we believe those things, and, not our, and, and we reject those things, than our own sinful, natural desires. And we need to understand, it's not just a matter of the intellect. It's not a, it, it's not a matter of just understanding. It's a matter of the heart. See, we must desire that the gospel be true. Not, not just understand it's true. We want it to be true. We want this God that we study. We want it to be true. We want it to be the most love, lovely thing, the most beautiful thing, and desire it to be true. As, as we read in the, in the Beatitudes, we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what we need to do, to, to, to have a, a correct understanding of who God is. 
So what does it look like? What does it look like to truly believe God's revelation, to, to truly believe that the dead are raised, to truly believe the gospel, to truly believe that we have been reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ? What does it look like? That we're now new creations, that we will live eternally in a perfect fellowship with God. What does it look like to believe that we too will be raised in glory and to love this reality and to desire this reality above all else? What does it look like? Well, we see what it looks like in Paul. We see what it looks like in the apostles. You see, a person who truly believes that God is real, that God had sent his son Jesus Christ to reconcile those who were at one point dead in Adam, dead in our sins and trespasses, fallen in Adam, dead in Adam, a person who truly believes that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have become new creations, new creations that love God, that seek to live for his glory, that seek to put to death our sin and seek to become like our Lord Jesus Christ. See, a person who truly believes that we have been given a mission, we have been given a great commission, and that is to make disciples of all people. There is no higher calling that we could have to proclaim the gospel of reconciliation to all the world and in in such doing to bring God glory. So what does this look like? Well, first of all, we know that there will be opposition to this message. We're told specifically that there will be great opposition to our message, told in God's word. And we are told that we have enemies. We have enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three will seek to destroy us. But we know that God is mightier. We know God is mightier. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God cannot fail. And we know that in Christ, we cannot fail. So what does this faith look like? Well, Paul shows us in the next couple of verses. Verse, look at verse 30. He says, we are in danger every hour. Every hour. This is the lot of the apostle. This is the lot of Paul. This is the lot of the missionary. This is a lot of the person who follows his or her divine calling and the great commission. This is the lot of every single Christian. The person is in danger every hour. They are in constant danger. Danger from the world, danger from the flesh, danger from the devil. we are under the danger of the world. The world is held captive to sin and death. The world hates truth. The world opposes the truth. The world has, has always persecuted the church. The world has always persecuted those who truly proclaim the gospel. Just take a look at Fox's Book of Martyrs. I was reading as I was preparing for this and just reading through all the, just the horrible Horrible stories of martyrs, but also glorious stories of martyrs. And it's going on today. Look at Voice Voice of the Martyrs. Even at this moment, there are Christians in other parts of the world, Christians in Nigeria who are being slaughtered, Christians in North Korea who are being slaughtered. It's going on today. And, and, and really in this country, we just had a brief break. Break from, from what has really been the norm throughout church history. And I fear that this break is coming to an end. But we must resist. We must resist the corruption of this world. And at the same time, we must seek to rescue those who are caught in the grip of this world. See, this world is our mission field. So the people of this world, they are not our enemy. The world is our enemy, but these people are not. The people are our mission field. And we must reach them out. We, we can't just separate ourselves from the world. We must be in the mission field. We must be with these people. So it's dangerous. So that's the world. But we're also under danger of the flesh. Even though we're new creations in Christ, we still carry around this body of flesh, that old sinful nature. 
And there is a constant battle going on in every believer, every one of us. We, we have this new nature that loves God and wants to please God, but we still have this old fleshly nature that still loves the world and still loves the things that oppose to God. And I'm preaching to myself every much as I'm preaching to you all, because I know this, and we must daily, daily crucify this nature. And if we don't, it will seek to crucify us. See, we can have no peace with the sinful nature. If we are not killing it, it is killing us. That's how serious this is. This is the flesh. We are also under danger of the devil. And this may seem strange. This may seem superstitious in the modern scientific age. But there are real, personal, and malicious spiritual creatures that oppose God and oppose his people. Our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion, seeking those to devour. Scripture tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these are our dangers that we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul, the apostles, us, we are under this constant danger. And at this time, in this place where we live, we're fortunate to live in, in the West or in the U.S., this danger is mostly spiritual. It's, it's very seldom physical, at least not yet, but it certainly could be. One day this opposition, this danger, may be both spiritual and physical for the apostles and really for most of the Christian church throughout church history, it has certainly been both spiritual and physical danger. And we don't like this reality. I don't like this reality. We wish it were not true. But both scripture and experience confirm this reality. And failure to to recognize it or denying this reality will only hinder us in our mission, only hinder us in our faithfulness to the Lord and his word. Continuing in this description of true faith, let's take a look at verse 31. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. And Paul takes pride not in himself, not in his abilities, but he takes pride in what Christ is doing in the Corinthians, in this church. This is Paul's joy. And is this our joy? Is it our joy to see God at work, to see God build his kingdom? And God does build his kingdom. God builds his kingdom through weak and faltering Christians like the Corinthians, weak and faltering Christians like us here at Northgate and the church. It's existence. It's sustenance. This is proof that God's kingdom is going forth. God's kingdom is advancing. And we too should take pride. We should take joy in this fact. This is the proof that the gospel is going forth. Souls are being saved. The great commission is being proclaimed. Our commission is being accomplished. In this we can take joy. But this spiritual and eternal progress, this comes at a cost. It comes at a very high earthly cost. And Paul states this cost at the end of the verse. He says, I die every day. I die every day. See, this is what true faith looks like. This is the answer to our question. This is what it looks like to pass the test. It looks like dying every day. Dying to ourselves. Dying to our worldly desires. Dying to worldly comforts and reputation. All for the advancement of the kingdom of God. All for the glory of God. Again, I am preaching to myself because this is the hardest thing to do. It's not just do it once and then you're done. It's doing it every day. And you might pass today, then tomorrow you might fail. It's every day. And it's difficult. It requires sacrifice. It will bring pain. 
And we wish, I wish it were not true. And there will be the temptation for us to deny this reality, to reject this truth, to believe a more comfortable truth, a truth that will allow us to enjoy our best life now. But my friends, this is false faith. Paul goes on in the first part of verse 32 with this rhetorical question. He said, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, Paul is probably not speaking about fighting with literal beasts. This is most likely figurative description of the intense human opposition that he faced in Ephesus. But the key point here, the key point is that he says, what do I gain, humanly speaking? Humanly speaking. What does Paul gain, humanly speaking? That is from a human perspective. And the answer is clear. Absolutely nothing. All his labor, all his suffering, all the persecution and opposition, if you're looking at it only from the perspective of this world, will bring absolutely nothing. He will gain nothing. And here we see the difference. The difference between true faith and counterfeit faith. Counterfeit faith, regardless of what is professed, counterfeit faith is only concerned with our temporary human perspective. Counterfeit faith is only concerned with this world, only concerned with maximizing the pleasure and the profit that is found, humanly speaking, in this world. Therefore, according to counterfeit faith, faithfulness to God's word and the Great Commission is found only when there is a benefit to us in this world. As soon as we see opposition, as soon as we face suffering, as soon as we call to, to fight beasts and to die every day, then counterfeit faith has absolutely no interest. Counterfeit faith is out of here. Counterfeit faith is going to try something else. And this fact really highlights the danger our American church faces with really this long period of of peace and prosperity, with the respectable status held by, by the church and by Christianity. And we must question our motives. Are we really faithful or are we only chasing after the world's blessings? Are we only acting humanly speaking and, and looking for the gain which is ours from this worldly perspective? You see, we seem to get it backwards. We get it backwards. We think God is blessing us when we have prosperity, when we have peace, when we have fame, when we have fortune. All the things that the world seeks after. But what does Jesus say? <clears throat> what is Jesus? Who are the ones that Jesus counts as blessed? Well, what did we hear in our gospel reading this morning from Matthew 5? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do we want to be poor? I know I don't want to be poor. We want to be rich. We want to be filled. But Jesus said it is the poor in spirit who are blessed. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it means that those who are desperate, those who know their need, those that know that they cannot solve themselves, solve this need on their own. These are the ones who are blessed. And they're blessed because they know. They know that they cannot save themselves. They know that only God can save them. So they despair of their own ability, and they turn to God. And notice the specific blessing that this verse bestows, that Jesus bestows on the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? Well, entry into the kingdom of heaven, this is basically what it means to be a Christian. It means only those who are poor in spirit. Only those. It is only those who despair of their own ability. Uh, Only those can even be part of the kingdom of heaven. 
And this is a description of the believer. This is a description of the true born-again Christian. Consider these other Beatitudes, which describe the, the true Christian. And none of these things, none of these things we would desire as part of our modern American church. Blessed are those who mourn. Do we want to mourn? I don't like to mourn. We want to rejoice. We want to always be happy. Blessed are the meek. Do we want to be meek? No. We want to be strong. We want to be in charge. We want to be dominant. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Do we want that? Do we want to be persecuted even for righteousness' sake? Do we want people to hate us? Do we want people to utter all kinds of evil against us falsely? No. We seek to avoid any discomfort. We are offended when our rights are encroached upon. Even as Christians, we demand our rights. Right? Do we want others to revile us? Do we want others to persecute us? Do we want others to utter all kinds of evil against us falsely? Of course not. We want to be loved by everyone. I want to be loved by everyone. Even those who are doing evil. And we must defend ourselves, right? If any slander, any misunderstanding, we have to defend ourselves. We have to justify ourselves. We have to always get the last word. And do you see why this is such a concern for the American church? If this is a test of true faith versus counterfeit faith, how are we doing? And each one of us, each one of us needs to ask himself, is my faith only for this world? And unless we have a firm conviction of the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, that the dead are indeed raised, unless we really desire these things to be true, unless we really love these things and and love the things of God over the things of the flesh, we will live only for this world. And more than that, more than that, if we are like this, if we are living for this world, we will not want this to be true. We will not want the gospel to be true. We will not want the Bible to be true. And what little faith we have, it will evaporate. And why? so that we can live the way we want to live for this world only. And we see this in the very next part of this verse. It says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And this is the problem that Paul was really finding in Corinth. Many in the church were living identically to pagans. They were living as if the dead were not raised. They were living as if this life was all there is. And even though they knew better, Even the pagans knew that the dead are raised. God had written it on their hearts through common grace. And God had given the church to the church through special revelation through the testimony of the apostles. But just like the pagans suppressed this knowledge to indulge their their godless and immoral passions, the church did too. The church did too. It wasn't necessarily openly denying it, but they were living as if these things were not true. They were focused on this life only living for the satisfaction of eating and drinking to maximize the pleasure in this short life alone. Verses 33 and 34 are Paul's rebuke to this unbelief and rebellion against God's revelation as he commands and and God's commands. And he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. See, the Corinthians were deceived. This sin is subtle, and they fell for it. And sadly, we often fall for it as well. See, they lost sight of the spiritual and the eternal promises found in God's word and in the gospel. And they focused solely on this world only. They adopted the philosophy, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
And how does this happen? How could this happen? How could this happen to God's people? Well, we see the answer in the next part of verse 33. He says, bad company ruins good morals. And the bad company and is the people and the things that pull us away from the things of God and have us focus solely on the things of earth. The good morals are the good Christian morals, the things that's taught in Scripture, and the, the things that we know, but they're corrupted by the bad company. And they were corrupted by focus solely on this world, focusing solely on the pleasure of this world. And the Christian morals basically became irrelevant to them. I want you to think about a time when you've been away from Christians, and perhaps in a very worldly sense. It could have been um, during COVID, when, when you weren't able to get to church, or, or maybe due to work, you had to work extra hours, and, and, and you were in a very secular setting, surrounded by unbelievers, maybe even people who were openly hostile to the faith, blaspheme or mocked the things of God. My question is, what was your attitude during this time? Did you find yourself praying less? Did God seem less real to you during this time, less present? Did you notice a change in your thinking? It's subtle. Were you starting to think like those around you? And I've been in these situations. I know it's spiritually draining. And after a, a long time, the spiritual effect can be subtle. It can go unnoticed, but it can create so much damage. In verse 44, Paul gives a command to really to break the hold of these bad morals and this bad company have on a Christian. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up from your drunken stupor. And basically, he's, he, he's trying to get their attention. And that's what this deception is like. It's like being drunk. It's like a drunken stupor. And what Paul is doing is he's, he's figuratively pouring a, a bucket of cold water over their head to get their attention. He calls them to wake up, to sober up, to recognize what they're doing, to recognize that they're sinning, that they're rebelling against God. And Paul calls them to do what is right. Stop sinning against God. See, they're acting as those who don't know God act. And a problem that we see throughout this letter to, to, in Corinth is, is this is what they're doing. The Corinthians are doing. They're acting like the pagans. And, and not only that, not only are they acting like the pagans, they're proud of their paganness. They're proud of their worldliness. They see it as a badge of honor, testifying to their spiritual maturity. Look at what we can do, because we're not legalists. We can do this. No. And Paul very bluntly and quickly puts an end to this false view when he says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Now, what is the application for us? Right? We went through this. This is what the Corinthians were going through. Well, what about us? How do we protect ourselves from displaying the same counterfeit, superficial faith despite claims of being a believer, despite claims of trusting in Christ? That's a very important question for us to ask, especially here in the Bible Belt. Where, where there's still some social benefit of identifying as a Christian. It's not the case in other places in Europe or, or the Northeast or the Pacific Coast. There, being a Christian doesn't get you any benefit. But here, at least in the Bible, well, claiming to be a Christian still brings public benefit. So this question is very applicable to us sitting here today. And there's only one application. One application that I'm going to take from this. And that is we must have a biblical worldview. We must have a biblical worldview. It's not enough to simply say, I'm a Christian. It's not enough to say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I've invited Jesus into my heart. I've been baptized. I've raised my hand. I've walked down an aisle. 
Far too many people know all the Christian buzzwords. And they may be truly regenerate. I'm not questioning the, the salvation of their souls. God knows whether they're a believer or not. But the problem is, the problem is these people who claim to be believers don't act any differently than an unbeliever. They don't think any differently. They don't live any differently. And only a biblical worldview can protect us from this type of deception. So what is a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview? Well, it's an understanding about the way God has ordered the universe. And this understanding is based solely on his infallible word, not based on the dogma of those who are in rebellion against God. And what are the components of a biblical worldview? Well, here's an easy way to remember it. I, I have five components. Some people might number them differently, but basically the same. And the five components are creation, corruption, redemption, restoration, and consummation. Creation, corruption, redemption, restoration, and consummation. See, a biblical worldview starts with God. It starts with God, not how we want him to be, but as he is defined in Scripture. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, creator and sustainer who sovereignly ordains and directs all things for his glory. And Scripture reveals to us that this God is triune, existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the triune God created all things that exist and he pronounced it all very good. This is creation. The next part is in Adam. Our race rebelled against God, plunging the creation into the fall of death and decay. The creation was subjected to futility. And in Adam, each one of us is spiritually dead. Each one of us is under God's just condemnation. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2 describes our condition, the condition of every single person ever born other than Jesus himself. And it says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is corruption. This is true of every single person who was born. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he did not leave the creation, this fallen, broken, miserable condition. God acts. God does what he alone can do. We are completely powerless to do anything in this wretched and miserable condition. And God takes the initiative and God redeems his people. And this redemption, while freely offered to us, comes at a tremendous cost. A cost not to us, but a cost by the triune God. And the cost is the blood of the Son, the blood of the second person of the Trinity. The scripture tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this redemption, which is of infinite value, is offered to us freely. It is all of grace, and it is received, not by anything we do, but solely by faith. We are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. And my friends, this redemption changes everything. It changes us from objects of God's wrath to his beloved children. Ephesians 2 continues, while it tells us we are dead in our sins and trespasses, and by nature children of wrath, it then continues, but God, by God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the results of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. This, my friends, this is redemption. In a Christian and biblical worldview, understands that we are redeemed for a purpose. Redemption has a purpose. We are not our own, but we belong to God. We were redeemed from slavery to sin and death, and we have been redeemed to live for God and for his glory. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, not to satisfy our sinful desires, but to do good works, which God prepared beforehand. We are to walk in them. He's prepared them, and we are walking. We cannot fail. This is our purpose. And this leads us to the next component of a Christian worldview, restoration. And my friends, if you are a believer, this is where we are right now. We are in the restoration. As new creations in Christ, we are his ambassadors. We are his agents to bring about this restoration of the creation. We are to participate. We get the privilege to participate with God to bring about the restoration of this universe, to reverse the fall. We have the privilege to participate with God in doing this. And we do this through proclaiming the gospel. By bringing people into the kingdom. That's one way. But we also do this in our individual callings. Whether it's medicine, whether it's education or arts or business or farming or countless other vocations. We do this in our calling. In our calling we make this world a better place. We undo the fall. This is restoration. And this restoration will be successful. Not because of our talents, not because of our efforts, but because of God's faithfulness. And this leads us to the final component of the biblical worldview, consummation. One day, and that could be today, and we pray that it is today, one day Christ will return and he will completely restore this creation, completely remove all traces of the fall, all traces of corruption. This is consummation. And this understanding, this worldview changes everything. We cannot live the same as the unbeliever. We cannot act the same as the unbeliever. We cannot think the same as the unbeliever. We are a new creation. We think, we live, we act differently. And my friends, we need to internalize the reality of who we once were in Adam and what God has done to redeem us, what God has done to unite us to Christ and who we now are in Christ and what he has called us to do, what he has promise to complete in us. And when we've done this, when we have internalized this, when we have this biblical worldview, it will affect every single aspect of our lives. And we'll never be able to live the same, act the same, think the same like an unbeliever. We are completely a new creation. May we always make this fact evident. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess that even though you have given us so much, even though you have given us so much light, there is still so much sin in us. We are still subject to the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, pulling us down and making us indistinguishable from the unbeliever. And Father, it's only going to get worse. It is only going to be more difficult as Christianity is going out of favor and when there is no more benefit to us, social benefit in this world, to being a Christian. It's going to be so important for us to make it clear. 
And the only way we can make it clear is if we trust your word, if we believe your word, if we are changed, we have this biblical worldview. And I pray, Father, for every single person who can hear my voice. Father, I pray that that will be true, that you will change our ways of thinking, that we'll no longer think like the unbelievable. We will think according to your word. And Father, we pray that you will be glorified through us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.